This morning, we have a treat. Uh, I won't be preaching. I got to wake up. My, my, my kids and my wife was away. I got to cook breakfast, relax, you know, hang out in the morning because I'm not preaching this morning. We have one of our elders. If you guys didn't know, we are an elder-led church, and God has given us uh, four, four elders, including myself. It's Charles, Evan, and Matthew. And actually, throughout the year, you're going to see them uh, preach and take the pulpit time to time. Um, and it is a gift. As we've been reading, as we've been training as elders, we recognize elders, being an elder is not just sitting and deciding how the church budget will be determined, how we're going to make those decisions and finances. Those are the part of role of elders, but more important role that we've learned through this training is that all the elders are actually pastors. And they're called to shepherd. And part of shepherding is the ability to teach. That's what scripture says. So I've been challenging all of our lay elders to get ready to preach. Um, so today, our brother Charles, he's the first one up. And he's been super excited. Actually, I've never met any lay person that's so excited to preach. It was amazing. Because other guys were like, I don't know if I want to preach or not. But Charles is like ready to go. He ready to take my job. I was like, all right. Um, but Charles is married to a wonderful wife, Yuna. They have two wonderful kids. They've been part of our community from actually from fairly early part of our community. I've known them in our time at Jubilee as well. And, and he's going to introduce a little bit about himself, give you a little bit of the story. But Charles, one thing you know about Charles, he has the brains, but he also has the heart. He just, he loves the Lord. And that comes out every time we meet, every time we hang out. He's a smart dude. He's not going to tell you what schools he went to. He's a smart dude, but he loves the Lord. And I appreciate that about Charles. So as Charles comes up, this is hard. Let's, let's, hold on, Charles. Let me read the scripture. <laughs> Charles is excited. Already trying to come up. All right. Let's read the scripture. Philippians chapter 3. We've been in the book of, book of Philippians over the last several months. Philippians chapter 3. Charles gets the best part, man. I, I'm, I'm mad. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is Paul. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor Sanglin, for that introduction. Hi, everyone. My name is Charles Kim. I was born here in Korea, 
but moved to, the, to Los Angeles with my parents when I was six and grew up in Southern California. I'm a husband of over 13 years to my wife, Yuna. As Pastor Sangmi mentioned, we have a 10-year-old daughter and an eight-year-old son. And a big thank you to all our volunteers who help teach them every Sunday about God's love. Our family lived in Hong Kong for nine years before moving here to Korea over five years ago. I am a lawyer by profession, and currently I work at a global e-commerce mattress and furniture company. I began trusting in Christ sometime during high school. I'm not someone who can point to an exact moment, and that's okay for those of us who are in that category. A person who's had a great spiritual influence on me is Pastor Tim Keller. If you don't already know him, you may still recognize the same, na his name since Pastors Hangmin and John and Elder Evan all quote him quite often. I used to devour his sermons on cassette tapes in my car back in the early 2000s. I have tried to prepare this message in my own voice, but for those of you who are familiar with Tim Keller, uh, you will unmis unmistakably notice some familiar themes. We're continuing our series in Philippians, and we're now at the beginning of chapter 3, as read by Pastor Sangmin. And thank you for giving me this passage. <laughs> as Pastor Sangmin and John have mentioned in previous weeks, Paul is in Roman custody, not knowing whether he will live or die. He's writing to a church that he loves dearly. They sent one of their members, a man named Epaphroditus, as a messenger, together with money and gifts to help take care of his needs. Paul is thankful for their love and care, and he wrote this letter for Epaphroditus to take back to his church at Philippi in Greece, over 1,200 kilometers away from Rome. Paul starts a new topic in chapter 3 after the part of his letter talking about Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2. Whether we consciously recognize it or not, each of us is in a continual search for identity and significance. These are things that we must have or achieve or do or be to make us feel that we are okay, that we belong, that our lives mean something that we have not failed. Growing up in California, I was a pretty good student. I got good grades, I did well in school. But I remember there was a scholarship that I applied for while I was in high school, which I would receive in college if I had been selected. The final stage for the scholarship was an interview with this board of four to five professionals. And you have to remember, this was pre-Google, pre-YouTube, and having all kinds of information at your fingertips on the internet about how to prepare for an interview or any other skill you can imagine. I had little idea what to expect, and I totally bombed this interview, and I knew it even as I was stammering out terrible answers sitting there. I may still cringe a bit thinking about it. Uh, of course, this was no big deal in the grand scheme of things, but at the time, it was a feeling of failure that I was not used to. I had built a big part of my identity around the self-image of being a good student, a good kid, somebody that adults loved. I failed to get that scholarship. I was not accepted by those adults, and my self-image took a big hit that day. I mention this because this was one of the first major failures I felt and I still remember, but it certainly wasn't the last. Even though I was a young Christian, I had built my identity on what I will broadly categorize as human outward appearances and human achievements. Outward appearances are what we try to portray to others as who we are. And human achievements, and these, these are obviously related, but these are the things we try to achieve in life that we believe make our lives significant and valuable. In verses two through six, Paul addresses this topic of outward appearances and human achievements 
and refers to this as putting your confidence in the flesh. In verses 7 through 11, he talks about something far better, which is confidence in Christ. Let's start with verse 2, where we have the strongest warning and some of the strongest language in this letter. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What is this about, and why this kind of language? Well, when we face something threatening, and threatening not just to us, but especially threatening to something or someone that we feel a responsibility to protect, like a family member or a friend or a cause that we care deeply about, strong emotion and language may come out. The Bible has a few references to a bear robbed of her cubs in Hosea and Proverbs. That's a scary thought to run into a bear robbed of her cubs and for that bear to think that you're the one responsible for her cubs not being around. This language from Paul was an expression of a righteous anger, like that of a bear protecting her, her cubs from danger, the kind of anger we saw when Jesus went into the temple and began turning over the tables of the money changers and those who were buying and selling there, those who had turned what was supposed to be a house of prayer into a marketplace, a den of robbers, in the words of Jesus. Those merchants were turning people's attentions away from what was truly important, away from God. And these people that Paul refers to as dogs were doing the same thing, turning people's focus away from the gospel, the new covenant that God had revealed through Jesus Christ. Paul was referring here to Jewish legalists who were coming to the non-Jewish Gentile Christians in Philippi and saying, you need to believe in Jesus and you also need to be circumcised and follow these other Jewish rules and customs in order to be saved. Mutilators of the flesh is referring to one of those, these Jewish requirements, which was circumcision. This message that the Jewish legalists were trying to teach the church at Philippi was very threatening to Paul. So he was writing to these Philippians as a shepherd, writing to his sheep, or as a bear protecting her cubs. And he is very concerned and is threatened that his sheep would be led astray. He's saying to them, Watch out, there are wolves among you. Do not buy into this message. You cannot do anything to earn God's love and praise by what you do. The message of the Jewish legalists is based on outward appearances and human achievements. This message, it's widespread in this Korean society and in different forms in every society since the beginning of time. It says that our value, our worth, our significance is based on what we do what we accomplish, where we went to school, or what job we have, our net worth, how beautiful or tall or thin we are, whether we're married or not, or have kids, the clothes we wear, or what car we drive, and I can keep going on and on, and probably you can too, about the infinite ways that we judge each other's significance and value in our society. Watch out, Paul says. You cannot clothe yourselves in these outward appearances and human achievements and then demand of God you must accept me now. No matter how much we try to clothe ourselves with these things, no matter how strictly these Jewish legalists kept to the law, we could not solve our fundamental problem of our self-centered, wicked hearts. In verse 3, Paul contrasts the ideology of the Jewish legalists, which stands generally for trying to earn our salvation by something we do or accomplish, against those who have trusted in Jesus, and a salvation by grace. We are those who put 
no confidence in the, I think previous slide, no confidence in the flesh because we will never be able to solve the pro problem of our brokenness, our sinfulness by something we do in the flesh. We need someone to come save us. How well do you know yourself? The more we get to know Jesus, the more we grow in maturity in Christ, the more we realize how messed up and self-centered we are. If we know ourselves, our motives for even our good actions are rarely completely pure. Paul says in Romans 7, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. What a wretched man I am. This is the Apostle Paul. Do we all know how broken we are as human beings? How prone we are to having hateful and prideful thoughts? How susceptible we are to trauma and addictions and illnesses of all kinds and hypocrisy? This is not just what we read in the news. This is what's going on in each of our hearts, in my heart, your heart. We, position, um, we point our fingers at those who abuse their position and power, but then when we get into that same position, we do the same thing. That's what the classic book Animal Farm is all about. We must watch our hearts and not think that we are incapable of any type of sin. This message that no one is righteous that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as Romans 3 says, it's an offensive one. But this is a message we must accept about ourselves to come to God. Andrew Murray, not the tennis player, but the South African pastor who lived in the 19th and early 20th century said, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. We are those who put no confidence in the flesh. Second, we are those who glory in Jesus alone. We must lay down our pride in anything of this world and trust in Jesus alone. Some translations use the word boast. We boast in Jesus alone. We Christians trust that Jesus was the only one who completely fulfilled the law. And when we say Jesus fulfilled the law, that means that he lived such a life that he upheld all the standards of the Old Testament law completely. And we see from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that these standards were, not, were meant to address not just outward actions, but they required perfect purity in our thoughts. And only Jesus could fulfill the law by those standards. But he lives that perfect life and gives us the credit for that perfect life by dying for us on the cross. Those of us who boast in this wonderful and loving God, Paul says, it is we who are the true circumcision. Circumcision was an act meant to symbolize that the nation of Israel was set apart from others as a people of God. Paul says here that circumcision was actually pointing all along to Jesus as the only one who makes people righteous and accepted by God. Through the cutting of his flesh, under the covering of Jesus' blood, we become the people of God by grace and not by works. So this circumcision is actually available to all, regardless of your gender. By the way, this does not mean we cannot take pride in a good achievement. We should take pride in good work and achievements that God has allowed us to achieve. But that is not the boast of our hearts, not the foundation of our identity and significance. The boast of the heart of a Christian, our central identity, is what Jesus has already accomplished for us on the cross. This is something that is absolutely secure. It can never be taken away or forgotten, unlike human achievements. This we can boast about and shout about from the mountaintops.
continuing on, hopefully I can help us better understand verses four through seven. And I just learned a number of these points preparing for this message. I believe Paul writes this to preempt an argument that he saw coming. He wanted to address those who were tempted to think, ah, those of you who are trusting Jesus, it's because you haven't and you can't be successful by our standards. That grace language, it's a crutch. You only go there because you weren't able to achieve the legal standards that we have achieved. Or in today's terms, you couldn't make the money or marry the right guy or girl or have that career or social media following. Paul's saying, well, let me just put that argument to bed. He's saying, I have and I had all these things that you so highly value and even more so than you. I was circumcised and on exactly the eighth day as prescribed to Abraham in Genesis 17, 12, I am from the distinguished and noble tribe of Benjamin, from the only Jewish tribe that remained loyal to the house of Judah when the kingdom split during the reign of Rehoboam, King Solomon's son. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews from a family that was not ashamed of our Jewish heritage and tried to embrace Greek culture and live like them. From this elite Jewish background, I was a Pharisee, that elite group of less than 6,000 who are known for their devotion and strict adherence to the law of God. From this elite group, I was not just a bookworm, but I practiced what I preached and persecuted those who stood against it. We know from Acts 7 that Paul, then known as Saul, was there to support or authorize the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And finally, Paul continues, as to righteousness based on the law, blameless. The NIV says, faultless. The Pharisees had a set of very high moral standards based on behaviors, which they could claim to have kept to or not. Paul is saying, I have kept these to a T. As we discussed earlier, Jesus taught that it was actually impossible to keep the underlying spirit behind these laws once you began to examine the motivations of the heart. But anyway, the Pharisees believed that this was possible through outward actions. And Paul is saying that based just on these external standards, his performance in this area was an A+. He had reached the top of his profession. By the standard of outward appearances and human achievements, he had made it. But in verses 7 through 11, Paul says something surprising, and we'll now move on to finding our confidence in Christ. In verses 7 and 8, Paul says that whatever were gains to him, and these are referring to all his worldly achievements that he just described in verses 4 through 6, he considers these as rubbish. This word may be slightly less familiar to American speakers of English, but in places like the UK and Hong Kong, Rubbish is actually the common word for garbage or trash. I believe that the Greek word here can also be translated as excrement or dung. If you think about it, this is a difficult message. Paul is using these words to describe the kind of things that billions of people, that you and I, try to strive every day to achieve. You know your three science degrees from MIT and your Nobel Prize? Count it as trash. Your Olympic gold medal your Academy Award, or recognition as a top surgeon in an area, count it as trash. Now, is Paul saying these things are actually trash or bad? That's not what Paul is saying, which is why he uses the word count, or also consider in other translations. This is a relative statement. Paul is saying, consider these things as garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This is comparative. When we compare the riches and treasures and accolades of the world on this side of the counting ledger 
and worth the knowing God, Christ, on this other side of the ledger, he is saying, consider this side as rubbish, garbage, dung. But is it really necessary to use this kind of language even in a comparative sense? It's not like we're comparing drugs and alcoholism and greed and hate and fraud to knowing Christ. In the context of this passage, Paul is talking about positive things like academic and moral achievements that he had achieved. And you may be thinking, or I may think, I'm proud of my achievements. I look forward to reaching my goals in my career or financially or in my personal life. Why is there the need to consider these things as garbage in any sense? And I believe there may, there may be at least two reasons that Paul writes in this manner. First, he knows just how dangerous these good things are. The constant danger is that these good things become the best things, and they cause us to lose focus on Christ. The great temptation in my life and your life, even as we are say, saying that we're serving Christ, is in actuality to look to the gifts in our lives for our ultimate happiness and purpose, rather than our good Father who gives us those good things. Just as an example, I can be a tad bit obsessive when I get into something, like when I picked up cycling or cryptocurrency investing. We'll set crypto aside. That's a totally different discussion. I don't want to distract. But who can be against exercise and health and investing to achieve our financial goals? But if I see myself spending most of my free time thinking about these subjects and looking up YouTube videos about them, even as I neglect spending time with God, reading my Bible and praying, and thinking about how he may be living in my life, working in my life, and in the lives of those around me, I need to check myself. In this context, I need to learn to consider in my heart cycling and financial goals as rubbish in comparison. The second reason that Paul uses these strong words, Paul is saying that God is actually this great and wonderful in the comparative sense, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Even the best things that we might enjoy in life are nothing compared to experiencing the goodness of God. We human beings are not generally not very good at staying away thing, from things that give us pleasure. Ask any smoker who has tried to quit unsuc unsuccessfully again and again. What works much better is for our hearts to find something that we love even more, something that shines much brighter than the original thing. If you played modern video games, the original Super Mario Brothers on Nintendo, I'm dating myself here, <laughs> even though it's a classic, it's not going to hold your attention for too long. Paul is saying that knowing Christ is the ultra thing, the super thing that blows everything else out of the water. Knowing Christ is the pearl of greatest price that's worth selling everything you have so that you can gain it. Jesus is the brightest star in the sky by a long mile. When we begin to see and taste that the Lord is good, the beauty and majesty and greatness and love of our God and the magnitude of what he has done for us and what we mean to him, then the applause of man can become faint in our ears and the applause of God much louder. Our idea of the goodness of God is much too small. Two quotes that have stuck with me for many years. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose from a Christian missionary and martyr Jim Elliot. Knowing God and being his son, being his daughter, is the best thing we can have. 
If we gain the whole world, riches and fame, but lose Christ, we have lost everything. But, if we, but even if we should live the most humble life, lives, if we have Christ, we have the whole world. Because he who owns the cattle on a thousand hills is our father. Absolutely the best thing we can imagine in life is completely free. I find that mind-blowing. We cannot buy it or earn it, and it's available right now. My friends and I were recently trying to make a reservation, but the offer seemed a little too good. This was on the internet. And we debated for 10 minutes whether this was a fraud or not. And then someone else took it, and we learned that it hadn't been a fraud. And, and me being a smart lawyer was looking up similar cases you know, this, during this 10 minutes of where people have been defrauded. It's like, look, on this board, this person was defrauded in this way. And uh, so we missed out on the offer, and I had to say, uh, my bad. And we lost out on a great thing because we delayed and we were over-skeptical. The gospel sounds too good to be true because it's not just cheap, it's absolutely free. And we don't even have to wait, and it's available to all. It's very countercultural to things that hold value, where things that are scarce are valuable. Uh, the thing that is most valuable is the most available. It's easy to take it for granted, but it's easy to forget because we didn't pay it that our salvation, our redemption wasn't free. It cost God everything. The second quote that stuck with me for many years, live before an audience of one. And this is Christian author, Os Guinness. In case you're wondering, he is the great, great, great grandson of the famous Dublin brewer of Guinness beer fame. Um, but God is the only one we need to seek to please. Who are we trying to prove ourselves to, look good in front of? There's only one opinion that matters. So how do we know Christ more? How do we find confidence in Christ? One part of this process is to diagnose the state of our hearts. We need to look at our hearts and see if we actually want to know God. We may not be there right now. If your heart is like mine, my heart is deceitful. And there's a part of me that wants to run away from God. God can sound scary. Jesus says in Mark 8:34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. These are not popular words in our secular culture. But he's our only source of true life. As Peter declared in John 6:68, after a large group of followers had left Jesus after some difficult teachings, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So if you're not in a place where you want to know him, and I'm not there all the time, or you have not yet made that decision to trust Jesus with your life, then pray that God would give you the desire to know him more. Ask him to help you trust and surrender and do this continually. The Psalms have many prayers that we can pray, and this was the opening verse today from Psalm 119.37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. This is a great prayer. A related part of diagnosing our hearts is to recognize what things most distract us from knowing Christ. You know yourselves better than anyone. What are those things that most compete for your attention and affections and take you away from God? These are also the things that we may be tempted to try to use God to get. God, if you get me that job, or help me marry that guy or girl, or get me out of this situation, I will really serve you. 
Tim Keller had a tweet, don't obey God to get things, obey God to get God. God is the ultra thing. He is the super thing. He is the best thing. If anything is drawing our affections more than God, then come back to this passage in Philippians 3 and be reminded it's rubbish compared to knowing God. Seek God for God himself. We can have nothing better in life than God. Some of us are wondering, what's the purpose of my life? The Bible says this is our purpose, for us to know God and walk with him through all the joys and sorrows of life until we get to our real eternal home together with him. So we've prayed to God to give us the desire to know him. How do we actively get to know God? And how do we actively get to know anyone and love them? We spend time with them. We think about them. We learn what they like, what they don't like. We do what they want us to do, often when we don't feel like it, to make them happy. So we spend time with God in prayer. There's a resource called The Bible in One Year by Nikki Gumbel, and you can download it to your phone. In the October 17th entry last week, he writes what was found in a private prayer notebook of a great preacher named Lancelot Andrews, who lived in the 16th and 17th century. There were two lists. One, list, one was a list of times of prayer in the Bible, always, without ceasing, at all times, three times a day, evening and morning, and at noon, seven times a day, in the morning, a great while before the day, at daybreak, the third hour of the day, about the sixth hour, the hour of prayer, the ninth, the evening, by night, and midnight, all the times of prayer in the Bible. Then another list mentioned the places of prayer in the Bible. In the assembly, in the congregation, your closet, an upper room, a housetop, the temple, on the shore, a garden, on their beds, a desert place, in every place. There is no limit to the times and places and different ways in which you can pray. We hear from God primarily by reading the Bible. The Bible reveals God's character, his love, and his redemptive history for mankind. The more I read the Bible, the more I understand and realize how the Old and New Testaments connect, how Jesus stands at the center of history. I'm learning something new pretty much every time I read the Bible, even as I prepare for this message. Prayer and the Bible, the two main ways we get to know God. Whether we like it or not, we increasingly become more like the people we spend time with. The more we spend time with Jesus, the more we will become like him. Let's conclude by looking at verses 10 and 11. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. During our small group a few weeks ago, we discussed how positive Paul's mood was for someone in custody and possibly facing death. Paul was so focused on Jesus, he basically wrote, uh, this is in Philippians 1, through my imprisonment, I've had the opportunity to preach to the palace guard, and people have been encouraged by the way I've responded to the situation. One of our members made the point that Paul seems less concerned about the fact that he was imprisoned and facing death, and more concerned about the impact that his imprisonment would have on the church. Here was Paul, who had killed faithful Christians. But after meeting the resurrected Jesus, his life is completely changed, and his heart was so lifted that he fears neither man nor death. When people share experiences together, and especially hard, difficult experiences, their bond grows stronger, and you know them more. Paul, as he was suffering for preaching about Christ, 
I'm sure was thinking about and identifying with Jesus and his suffering on the cross. By suffering for the sake of the church, he was following in the footsteps of Christ, and I believe his understanding of God's heart and love would have become more tangible, more real. And actually, each of the disciples had the same experience. This blundering group, with every one of them scampering away to save their own skin before Jesus' crucifixion, after having sworn that they would remain faithful, nearly all of them go to their deaths proclaiming the gospel after meeting the risen Jesus. Why did Jesus suffer? Why did he endure such shame and go to his death naked on a cross? It was for Paul. It was for the apostles. It was for you. It was for me. A path for our forgiveness and acceptance before God. Jesus sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane thinking about being separated from his father. And yet he went to the cross and he stayed there even as he knew about our every failing, our every sin. Do you feel ashamed today? There is no one in this room who is beyond the reach of God. He sees you all the way to the bottom and loves you anyway all the way to the top. Get to know him. Find your confidence in him. And we will see that he shines brighter than anything in the world. When we know in our hearts how truly loved we are, we will be able to say with Paul, as he does in verse 1, no matter the external circumstances, to our own hearts and to everyone else around, rejoice. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that you would give me and everyone listening now the desire to know you, not as a means to an end, but as the best thing we can have in life. Help us to place our confidence not in our flesh, not in outward appearances or human achievements, but in Christ alone. And by your grace and spirit, help us to grow in our love for you and for others. Amen. Amen. All right, church, we're going to go to time of communion like we do every Sunday. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, you may be wondering, what's with communion? Or what do we do? Why do we do this every week? You know, as we share every week, this is the highlight of our, our gathering. Really, through the pandemic, you know, church has become very fluid. People could join online, offline, different ways. But I think one of the best reasons to be able to gather together as a community is to really do the very thing that Jesus has commanded us to do. And just as our elder Charles reminded us, Jesus lived a life that we could not live and died the death that you and I deserved. And so when we come to this place, whatever you're dealing with, perhaps there is an argument at work, perhaps there was an argument at home, perhaps you have some kind of struggle or, or, or things that you're worried about, perhaps you don't feel like you deserve to be here because of the things you have done or things that you have not done this week, uh, yet the truth is that when we come to the table, we are invited to Jesus' table. And, and Jesus says, it's not what you have done or how you have lived, how you have not lived. It's what I've done. And that's what we're celebrating.